my groove today. Been watching rain skies move away. I just don't think that I can lose, and I might just take a cruise and let the sunshine play. Something more, something new, something new. Ho, 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 everybody. Welcome. We got Rasta class here. We got Drew. Drew, it's the final episode of the year before we shut things down. How are you feeling about it? Uh, good, you know, so it's, it's been a, it's been a good year, right? Um, I've, I've really enjoyed doing the show. It'll be nice to kind of get a break. We'll be ready to kind of get things back going in, uh, in Hawaii. But unfortunately I didn't get the memo about, um, <laughs> whatever's going on there, but it's a good look for you, man. How, how are things with you? I think things are well, had a fun weekend, had a last, you know, a couple weekends have been kind of fun and yeah, a little bittersweet this week with RSM great tournament, but I'm I'm gonna have some withdrawals not watching golf each weekend. Now you might not just solely on football, but uh, luckily it's a fun time of year. It's a busy time of year, and you were just telling me you got a you got a birthday coming up here soon. Yeah, birthday Thanksgiving. It's uh it's a great time of year. You know, of course the weather's transitioning now to where outdoor golf has now turned into indoor golf. Um, so I have a cool little uh, place that opened up about a half mile down the road with new simulators and whatnot. So we'll be tuning awesome. the game up, uh, uh, for next, uh, next spring, next summer. Awesome. Well, glad to, glad to hear it. And also got your lions Thanksgiving game day. You know, that's always a big thing for you. So but have a, there's not a better birthday present than if we can win some money this weekend. So let's, let, let's do that for you. But, and let's recap last week. Jason Kokrak, trainer. I, how, how crazy of it? Yeah, what, what were your takeaways from yeah what you observed? Well, trainer literally just popped up out of absolute nowhere, right? We yeah. we can we can look trainer, at it. Barely nowhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trainer's parents didn't wouldn't even throw money on him based off of recent form. Oh, um, no, they wouldn't. So it was an interesting name, Kokrak, man. Um, if you think of of how things ended on Friday evening, right? They couldn't finish their round due to darkness because of the, the conditions on Thursday. So he comes back out, makes triple bogey to end his round, kind of you know, almost write him off to an extent. But then he by far played the best golf over the weekend, and, and he kind of went and got it. And really nobody tried to – it really – come Sunday, nobody was really trying to track him down. Everybody was kind of playing – and the course was – was playing tough, except for Jason Kokrak. And so the, the weekend he put together, um, I don't want to say it was kind of out of nowhere. We saw how he played at the CJ Cup, right? He was terrible. He even had comments um, that his game, he was thinking about withdrawing based off the state of his game uh, last week, which just kind of shows us how one small minute change or something mentally you know, in the swing can kind of click and, and you can go on and, and, and win. So – very impressive by Jason Kokrak. I know he wasn't on a ton of people's radars, so uh, hell of a weekend. Yeah, and that just goes to show how tough golf betting and DFS is. And we want to use that randomness, if you want to call it. That's, you know, Mike at the cut line talks so well at that about the variable of randomness. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. But yeah, and Kokrak has had some great back class, but just came in with terrible form. That like just was was what you mentioned. Even yeah, I saw that too. Talked about withdrawing, and then you know, trainer kind of a, a, out of nowhere. And man, kind of it looked good. I, a couple of outrights. I had Wolf obviously as on the Wolf Pack. 
than Mark Leishman if he would have just made a putt. But, you know, it all didn't work out. But I will say, you mentioned Kokrak's triple on his uh, 36 hole. It's like last hole, whatever. Last hole of the day on his second round. That That's actually what sealed me to win that 5K and that showdown slate. Because if he just would have parted, the guy that finished third was a half a point out of second. And so if he just parted, he would have got that, that par point and passed me up, and I would have lost like three grand. But because he tripled, it knocked him all the way down and was never a threat. So I really appreciate Kokrak doing that. But. You owe him an edible arrangement or something. <laughs> Bringing that up, yeah. speaking of that, let's talk about that. And so that was, what, Friday? Um mm-hmm. You 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 had a hell of a lineup, right? And and you made some uh, some Christmas money. What uh, what? So when we're going into a lot of edible was, arrangements, exactly. Yeah. So it was weird too because that's kind of one that you're sitting on for a while, knowing that there's still golf to be played when they come back out Saturday morning. So so what was the thought process in the lineup that you you put together um, on on Thursday night, and, and and what was the sweat like? So like when you're sitting there on Friday night. Do you kind of have an idea that you you have a pretty good chance at this, or did things just kind of unfold perfectly for you with the co-crack triple and, and other things? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. So Friday night, I knew I had an idea, but co-crack was like six under, I think, when the the horn sounded on, on Friday. And so I was like, gosh, okay, I'll need him to back up. Well, not only did he back up, a couple of my guys you know, you know, just kind of kept it together and even got a few birdies. And so then you just jump up the leaderboard. I knew I was in with a shot, and then that just makes the sweat fun. But I will kind of say, to answer kind of your first question, if playing showdown is great, especially when we get strokes gain data. You know, we finally got strokes gain data last week, and so we were able to use it. But we're not. I'm not using it in the way every other person is. So what t- people tend to do, and we talk about this every week, is that people – overanalyze strokes gain data, right? Like you say that so well, like you understand, right? I mean, what, what do you typically say about? I use it as a crutch. I do like you just look at it. And when you're looking at these sites and everything's flashing green and and you're like, okay, well, this has to be the right path to go. Well, let's just doesn't, it rarely ever works out that way. Right. It just doesn't. (laughs) A thousand percent. And so people look at strokes gain data after round one, they think, gosh, this guy was sitting on approach. Well, it's so well. And so basically that's just too small of sample size to really then say, well, that's going to carry over to round two. That's the you know next shot fallacy is that what we think is going to happen is going to continue to happen. And that's not the case. So we get bad ownership. Like there's no ownership projections in showdown. But one thing you can kind of do is just assume what showdowns would be combined with, okay, here's what people are you know, playing well on approach and people that's going to carry over to round two. And sure enough, you know, that, that, that happens. And so what I really like to do in showdown, especially in two and three is, yeah, I might look a little bit at, at who might have some upside with ball striking, but especially round two, I like to lean more on my initial model heading into the tournament. And that's how I got, I got a guy like Adam Shake. Adam Shake was actually high on my model didn't play all that well in round one, killed it. He won me the tournament in round two. Yeah. Same, same thing with JJ Spawn, but nobody was on. They were, and that's how you win a GPP. I had three guys who were less than 5% owned. And you, I got there because not that their strokes gain data in tournament because of my actual model that I had in going to the tournament. So if you like guys going into the tournament, 
keep keep playing them after round one because it's just too small of a sample size. And so, you know, and I don't know, did you, like, you, you are so good at recognizing, hey, you just can't buy in. It's into the strokes gain data. So, I mean, did you see anything with that lineup or anything within, you know, maybe round one, the round two that people just maybe made a mistake on? Well, yeah. And, and just to ask you one more follow-up question is, mm-hmm. is there actually value in there not being ownership projections for a showdown? Because you think that if everybody just goes with the strokes gain data, they're going to try to find the guys that are trending and plug them in the lineup or, or you built your model and you know that one round is not or is not a large enough sample size to get on or off of somebody. So is there value actually there to where you can't look at ownership projections and kind of overthink it and you don't look all in on the strokes gain data and, and some people might. Is there is there kind of some value in that when you're looking at it building your showdown lineup? Yeah, so I, that's a great point, because if you're not using any sort of game theory method, then you're just blindly playing people, whether it's blindly, hey, this guy's playing well on approach or this guy's doing whatever, because strokes, I mean, a projected ownership can be very well predicted going in showdown lineup. So if you look yeah. at a guy, let's just say, let's say he was a guy in the 10K range, so a well-known golfer, like let's say Scotty Scheffler, let's pretend that going into the week, he, he was at 10% owned in regular contests. So contest, you know, round one, the four, the most common one we play, he's 10% owned. And if he has a great day on, on Thursday, well, then he's going to be 20% owned on Thursday. And so you're, then you just, you just know that because people get into that recency bias. Showdown is so good for recency bias. And so then you say, okay, Scotty Scheffler's ownership price is going to be so inflated, but nobody's telling you that. You don't see that on sites because nobody right. does it. You're just using that game theory in your own mind. And you said, okay, pivot off a guy like that. So, yeah, answer, you're right. If you have that game theory perspective, that yeah, that the showdown is, is king. And you do get massive value and leverage off that. Yeah, and, and to, cause we talk about it all the time. I mean, the recency bias comes up huge when we're talking about one round. And we talk about how that's just not enough. So when you're yeah. when you're picking a guy just because he has one bad round and we we see kind of it all the time somebody rings off a weekend and ends up winning so when you see that and you kind of know in your mind hey Scotty Scheffler he was great on approach today he did all things well he just didn't putt well well you kind of know when you're trying to think game theory wise in the head of somebody else when you're picking that showdown lineup we're trying to think of what the people are thinking and why they're thinking it. So if you kind of know that, hey, people are going to just be recency bias. I'm blacklisting this guy. This guy shot four over on Thursday. Then yeah. you know that your model, there's a reason that there's people where they were and one round's not enough. So I think there's – that's the interesting – because it's just different with Showdown because I, I do think people are going to look at trends and they're going to play those trends. Well, you know, 18 holes of golf is just not enough. Like guys can come out and, and lead – the entire tournament in strokes can approach one day. And then it's just not even close to being that on the second day. That's why we look at these larger sample sizes when we come up with things and we talk about it all the time. That's why some days, some weeks we play guys that it doesn't work out, but that doesn't mean it was the wrong approach. Right. So I, I think that's interesting. And there's definitely value to be gained with, with kind of thinking that, and that's pretty much you're, you're, you're kind of in your brain thinking of projected ownership numbers, even though they're not they're a tangible thing you can look at. You kind of are saying, okay, here's how I think other people are thinking. Where can we kind of go from here and to create some value? And I think that's in street and in, in hell of a lineup, man. And uh, you've you've been on a heater, some first round leaders, the the showdown there on Friday. So 
So what a what a good way to uh, to kind of end the, this part of the season. Of course, we'll, we'll have to cap it off another good weekend this week. Yeah, well, I appreciate you, you saying that. But you, and I, there's one thing you said so well is you just said that we're thinking about what other people are doing. And that sounds obvious, but that is exactly what the game is in DFS. It's not a handicapping contest. It's not trying to find the six golfers that are handicapping shows we think will win. It's we're competing against other people. And we'll get into that maybe just in a, a little second. But I appreciate you saying that. And my wife and I, we went, we went out to brunch thereafter and got bottom of mimosas. That's mimosas. What, that, that's, what, that's what DFS can do. That's what DFS can do for you. But I do because there's one thing. I, I know we'll, we'll talk about the course here, you know, I guess, right now. But there's one thing I want to get your kind of expert opinion on, you know, being in, knowing your background. So obviously we have two courses here. We have the plantation and the the seaside course they're both bermuda and everyone is is highlighting got bermuda it is you know so important you got to play you know bermuda but mike at the cut line brought up something very interesting that he talks about that it's going to be overseeded with with possibly some rye in there that that hurts every bermuda player that it just maybe excels on bermuda and so I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but just maybe knowing how some of those grass works and around the green and putting, does that bother you at all? Or what do you think about that? Well, so it's interesting. So with, with, with the overseeding, when we talk about Bermuda, these guys are so good and they play on it enough where, where we can, we can start to look in the grain of the greens, right? So there's, there's certain grain growing at you. There's certain growing grain going at, you know, away from you when you overseed, those things aren't as visible and easily like you can't just determine, OK, hey, the grain is, is definitely growing against me here or it's definitely down grain. And it's interesting, especially on the greens, but even in the short game shots. Right. When you're hitting off of tight lies, determining which way the grain is moving is very, very important. And you can visually see it on a not a non overseeded Bermuda green. Right. If, if it's down grain, it's going to be shiny, that shiny color where it's into the grain, it's going to be that darker color. So that's a that's a immediately in somebody's head when they're a player, they can kind of determine and it helps with speed. The other thing that's interesting with this week is we're playing two different golf courses that are going to have two different speeds of greens. And so it's also going to come down to what kind of player can adjust to, to different speeds of greens. And we see this in other tournaments where they, where they have multiple different golf courses. But that's a great question. I think what it takes is is people that have a a distinct advantage on Bermuda. I think it kind of evens the playing field a little bit when it's when it's fray, when it's overseeded as it is now. Oh, that's that's what I love to hear because the point of bringing that up is if everybody is talking about Bermuda players around the green putting, you know X Y Z. Well, then everybody's going to get the same players in their lineups. But if we're recognizing, gosh, hey, here's this big unknown variable that it might be overseeded. Well, that that hurts maybe the the skilled players that do so well on Bermuda that you just talked about so well. So yes, great great insight. Yeah, and it's it's definitely a thing. Like you know, there's we we see players that excel on certain grasses, but when we can kind of bring people closer. So when, when your great putting is not as exacerbated as it would be on a weekly basis on a normal Bermuda greens, then it starts to draw people where we don't necessarily, maybe we don't have to focus on that, that strokes gain putting as far as Bermuda goes, we can kind of look elsewhere to gain value. Oh, a, a thousand percent, a thousand percent. Well, 
And so I know we have two courses and the seaside one is we play, you know, the three rounds at, but you know, if, if you're a golfer and you're standing on the tee box, you know, what, what do you know about this course that the golfer, what, what's going through their head or what are they, what's the first thing they see standing on that tee box? So I think it almost even starts before they stand on the first tee. Right. And so, and this is the reason why is this is kind of a mental thing. We know that the plantation course plays significantly easier than the seaside course. We it's it's almost the same exact distance. One's a par seventy two. One's a par seventy. So I think when you when you stand on the tee and say you're playing the plantation course on Thursday, in your mind you almost say I got to get it going. Like I got to shoot a low number today because this is the opportunity. And and sometimes it works out that way. Sometimes it it makes you press. Uh, both are starting out with short par fours, but that mental idea where especially say you tee off in the afternoon on the plantation course and you see there's somebody at eight, nine under, let's say, right. That immediately in your mind, you're like, I have to get a low one today and survive tomorrow where I think that may be more difficult than the guys that are playing the seaside course that are like, listen, I can put in a decent two, three under round and I'm right there and I have my opportunity tomorrow and they kind of see the field clearer than they would for the, the guy that plays in the afternoon. So I think that mental hurdle is, is, is kind of significant. Some guys are potentially going to go out there and press and try to make birdies uh, and, and, you know, and they just to keep up. Um, it, but it's interesting, you know, when, anytime we talk about the, the difference for me between the two golf courses is one golf course has, significantly more trouble than than the other so the seaside is definitely going to have more trouble conditions wind wise it's more susceptible to wind being you know on you know the 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 water as as you know is compared to, to being inland but i think that mental hurdle is something that that's something to to actually think about you know when especially the guys in the afternoon if you see those scores are super low you kind of have that feeling in the back of your mind we have to step on the accelerator early and if we don't, then we begin to press and bad things can happen and kind of spiral out of control from that point. Yeah. And, and you're spot on with the bringing up the wind and plantation plays easier. Because speaking of showdown, and we might want to know that. But I will say that Jason, who posts a great course preview at, over at Fanshare, brought up and no one is talking about it. So really shout out to Jason. Nobody's talking about it. Is that since the redesign from the loves, so Davis Love and his son, that the plantation played tougher after the redesign. And so it looks like now that there's low wind on, or maybe there's high wind, I, forecast change, whatever. But in a showdown where a lot of people are hearing this narrative that the plantation is easier, well, Maori might have this variable that since the redesign, they might play tougher. So I'm going to capitalize maybe on that in some, in some round one showdowns. Um, but that's it. I bring up point. The back data does say the seaside is tougher, but maybe after the redesign, who knows? One thing we know for certain, though, that Davis Love did make the greens trickier on the plantation course. That is one thing for certain and without question, but it, it does run still a little bit slower. But I think he, he kind of sh- shrank them and uh, made them a little bit tougher, made more undulation. So who knows? Maybe the plantation plays tougher and you, you win a GPP by stacking the seaside guys. And that's interesting because because to your point, everything you read is going to tell you. And this is why it's very interesting to me showdown wise. So the, the value you can see on a potential week to week basis, if you're talking showdown, 
is the draw, right? So if you know Friday morning is going to be absolutely brutal and Friday afternoon is not, then you can backload the showdown, right? You know that you want to play the guys in the afternoon. But to your point, since the redesign, everybody's going to look at it and say, okay, the plantation course is easier. Why am I not going to play all plantation guys? And, and, and to your point, we talk about this. Why are people, let's get in the mind of the guy we're playing against, right? The guy to the left of us at the bar, the guy to the right of us. Why are they, what are they thinking? Well, they just read that tons of people are talking about this. So is there an advantage going opposite of that? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Definitely could be this week. Um, and again, it, it, we we don't have tons of data. I mean, what, it's been two years. 2019, I believe, was, uh, was when Love redesigned it. But I don't know how much... So is there enough value to be on the side of everybody else? Because you know when these showdowns come out, people are going to to fade the guys that are on the seaside and they're going to play guys on plantation. So to your point, if, if things have been toughened up, there there could certainly be value and try to kind of go the opposite direction of what everybody else is thinking in this circumstance. Uh, a thousand percent. And it just goes into the next point i keep bringing it up that dfs is not a handicapping contest and so a lot of people go about creating lineups like it is so let's pretend that gosh okay i have my budget allows six outright golfers on my card and so based on value and the number in my budget i'm going to pick the six best golfers that i think can win and they make their, their lineups somewhat similar Here's the value. We have $50,000 is our budget. That's the drafting salary. I got to pick SIP golfers that give me the best upside. And so we handicap. And the problem is that there's a lot of ego behind that. And that's a huge problem because what strokes gain data does, and it's so helpful. It's really helpful in betting, but it, it gives us information to justify and rationalize our picks likely in great ways great ways for betting but that ego really hurts us in dfs because it makes us not see things systemically that we're part of a system we're in a larger contest where the real game is how do i beat these players in my contest not so much about how do i beat the house and so the key thing is there if the ego hurts us so real intelligence is knowing that we don't know that much and so we want to incorporate the variable of randomness. We want to incorporate that more can go wrong for a golfer than can go right. So many DFS players who are great golf handicappers think, well, I'm going to beat every guy or girl in my DFS contest by just out handicapping them. But unfortunately, golf is so hard to predict. We can't out handicap them. Maybe kind of tournament here or there. What we really have to do is find leverage, and that is what gives us success in DFS long term. Because what makes us feel like we're a great handicapper is those justifications and rationalizations based on stroke gain data. So I'm saying you, you guys follow your great method in handicapping. But in DFS, you got to turn, you got to take that hat off and put in, okay, I got to play the man and not so much the cards, just like poker. And so I, I just wanted to throw that out there because I'm just seeing now that people are handicapping DFS and they're, they're betting in the exact same way. And that is just going to drive you into the ground and burn money. Absolutely. It doesn't, it actually doesn't make a ton of sense. Now, 
<clears throat> excuse me. The other thing we have to take a look at for DFS, we don't necessarily need you to be the outright winner to, to, to cash a GPP. And I also think something that people fall into with DFS is the groupthink idea, right? So there's there's tons of people, and we we talk about it. You know, what are people thinking? There's tons of people, hey, this guy is a fantastic golfer. We we think he's going to have a good week. We played him on our outright card. There's no reason to not to play him in DFS. Well, you're playing against a standalone Vegas book when we talk about playing an outright or, or handicapping golf from that perspective. We're talking about tens of thousands of lineups. It's a whole different it, – it's completely separated from, from what we look at in Vegas. So there's great – and we talk about it quite a bit. There, there's plays that make a lot of sense as far as outrights are concerned that don't make a lot of DFS sense. And you see I look it. At, look at Brooks Kepka last week. Yeah. This is the biggest example. Fanshare's ownership projections on Brooks were, were so small earlier in the week, but everybody saw Brooks on everybody's card. And it's like, oh gosh, he must be a great DFS play too. So let's own him. And then Brooks came in as chalk. Brooks was a great bet because of his upside versus the price. At 30 to 1, Brooks, yeah, that's a great play. But. He, he was then became so highly owned because of that parallel. People are trying to say, well, DFS embedding is similar. Brooks Kepka is a great example last week of what you just talked about. Yeah, and, and that falls into that group thing, right? Everybody mm-hmm. sees what everybody – like, we, we see it all the time on, on social media platforms. Everybody posts their card. You don't see a ton of people say, hey, here's – and you do a great job of this because you like to put out your player pool, right? And I would be willing to bet a lot of money that you would not be throwing outright bets on those people in that player pool. Now, some you would, certainly, right? Because some you think have the potential to win. But at the same time, you're you're playing against tens of thousands of other people. You're not playing against one singular book. And just get somebody, if you get 35 to 1 on Brooks Kepka with the win equity that, that he does carry – Certainly, it's 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 something to throw you know ten twenty bucks on or whatever it may be you know what you do, but that doesn't correlate to DFS, right? It just doesn't. And I think that when when people are thinking of, of building their lineups, you have to draw the line between what makes sense here from an outright, a handicapping, a betting top twenty, top forty, whatever it is, and what makes sense here, right? Like take Denny McCarthy for example, right? He's actually been a really solid DFS play, but no, he's he's had no chance to outright. So you have to you have to figure out where put things in a bucket. Like so, let's say we have we have two lines. One here is a guy that you like in DFS. One here is a guy you like just straight handicapping golf. Now some guys fit both molds, but you have to talk yourself through each player. Is this a guy that I'm playing because other people think he is, and because the number outright so well? Or is this a guy I'm playing because I actually see the DFS upside and the randomness and I'm trying to play against tens of thousands of people? Is this gaining me an advantage? Or am I playing Brooks Kepka because everybody's playing Brooks Kepka? Now Brooks Kepka has become chalk. And then when he misses the cut, then it kind of ruins a lot of what you're doing, especially if you're building a player pool and having somewhat similar lineups with, with top-owned guys that you're rotating around. Yeah, and we talked a lot about Taylor Gooch last week. Taylor Gooch ended up being the highest owned guy. He came in at 25%. Thanks to owned. you. Yeah, yeah, gosh. And so we, we said, hey, it's time to sell on Taylor Gooch. 
Could Taylor Gooch won the tournament? Sure. But he was a terrible DFS play. Because what, what leverage are you really creating at 25%? Yes, he could have won the tournament, and that would have worked out. But we're thinking of like long term. You have to be consistent week to week to week in DFS. And again, just like you said, Brandon, it's more can go wrong for a golfer than can go right. So if you're buying into 25% own on a Taylor Gooch, where we know that more can go wrong, that is so risky. You think it's a safe play because everyone's talking about him. We've seen his current form. We think, yeah, gosh, he, he's, he's had a couple top tens, almost won a couple tournaments. So we think, gosh, he's safe. But over the long haul, if you invest on guys that own, that, that is so risky. It's like rostering 6K guys. That is so risky. And, yeah, there's good chalk and bad chalk, and we know how to you know kind of process that. But, yeah, you're exactly right. we got to really, really be mindful within ourselves of why am I playing this guy or why shouldn't I play this guy? Well, before we move on to kind of run down the board, anything else, Drew, that you have? Yeah, just one more thing to, to, to point out. It's just when you play a guy like that, the the margin of error is so razor thin that you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. And you said it best last week. If there's anybody in the Taylor Gooch fan club, it's certainly you. You've been on him for a long time. But the thing that I respect about you and, and that I think other people do as well is you are going to be upfront, honest, and say when you think that you should get off a guy, I don't care if that's your guy or not, right? Because – Things change. Things fluctuate. If you're setting yourself up for a razor-thin margin of error, and yeah, it may work out, it may not, but but it's it's too risky to an extent where it kind of hurts everything else that you're doing in a you know particular week. Where again, it, credit to you for for saying, hey, let's let's get off of the guy. It's not like he had a bad week, but at the ownership that he was at, it just wasn't the right DFS play last week. And to be honest with you, it's become to the point where. It might not be even a good handicap and outright pick at, at this point. His odds have gotten to that point. Yeah, and, and I'll say that, yeah, he was still in my player pool, but I went very underweight on him compared to the rest of the field. Underweight went in the sense of he was still in lineups that were contrarian that had guys that big in my and that were big in my player pool, like a Mark Leishman. Um, but but I'm so many, can I make 150 lineups? And so he, he was in only, I think it was like 20 of those 150. So I had all those other lineups kind of, kind of without them, very underweight. But so many people, if you just make five lineups and you inc include Taylor Gooch in the three or four of them, well, then you're overweight on them. And that's when it's a really bad DFS play. So quick question. Next, yeah. One other quick, quick question for you, just because I think some people might want to hear this. So, so in your 150 lineups, right, when you are putting these lineups together, what how what's the process look like right so i know that you 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 set your player pool and you'll have what 15 guys maybe just to throw out a number i believe it's somewhere around there um maybe a few more maybe a few less so when you're when you're going through each individual lineup what's the process right are there i saw last week you were you were heavy cam smith which which you know was fine right and and, and but so when you're are you basically taking this group of players and percentage-wise in them, and then trying to mix and match in between your player pool. Is that – what's the process look like when you're building these lineups? Because, A, building 150 lineups isn't for for the week. <laughs> and, and, two, like like what do you – like when you're building these, what what do you think about – like I know you have your player pool. I know that you, you have it down to this. But I think for me personally, and I think other people, 
what what's that process kind of look like? Yeah, it's a good question. And so I'll first I'll say if you can mass enter, so if you can do 150, it, it does give you an edge because the the vast majority, I'm gonna say like 75% of other people in that contest are, are not entering that many lineups. But it also sure. gives you you know your extend your player pool. But first of all, but if you do that, you have to make your player pool size the right amount. So many people make their player pool size way too large. I would say everybody that's listening likely your player pool is too big. So for 150 lineups, I think my player pool was around 40, 40 guys total for 150. And I know that people who make 20 lineups, their player pool is 35. So you can just see how the different, you want a very, very tight kind of player pool. And so then when, when you kind of have it narrowed down to the right number, then you assign percentages of what the golfers that you feel like is the best play based on, you know, some of the data, some of the game theory, some of the ownership. And so then you do kind of like a pyramid style salary or percentage allocation. So, you know, your top guy should be anywhere between 60 to 100% owned. So let's just say that, you know, Mark Leishman and Bez, I think in Cam, we're all one, two, three. Let's just say I, I wanted to use Mark Leishman. I was really confident in him. I'm going to put him 80% of my, in my lineups. Then I'm going to use Bez and Cam, and they're going to be 50. And then you're going to work your way down, and the player pool kind of expands as it gets down to the 15% range. I have the majority of my golfers in my player pool are 15%. That's because all the way up top, you have like a guy like Mark who's in 80% of your lineups. But then it kind of like shrinks as it comes below. So the guys in the low 6K range, obviously I'm not going to have – you know, the majority of tournaments, a high allocation of ownership percent, percentage into them because six hit guys are risky. But so that's the way to think of it as the pyramid. And you want guys that, okay, if I like Mark Leishman, he pops in my models and strokes games, back it up, the handicapping, the process backs it up. And then you say the game theory aspect is only going to be 10% owned or 13% owned. Well, that says, okay, green light, he's a great play. He needs to be 80% up there. Um, yeah, and then to kind of work your pyramid down, I, again, if you could do 150 lineups, there's a big advantage of that. It just makes make sure you stay within your means. Um, but, if, yeah, if you do that consistently, there's an advantage there. That's a good question. No, and and I think, I think to your point, people tend to have a bigger player pool, right? And, and especially when we're talking about setting, you know, a good amount of lineups, what happens what – I, what, what I think happens is people – sway away from their player pool, and then they just start clicking names, right? We're on lineup 96, and we just start clicking names. And and we're thinking, okay, we're being different. We're being different. Well, you built your player pool for a reason. Let's stay w- with what we're thinking and, and go off of that. So I think that's probably very beneficial to, uh, to other people listening because, again, for me, when I'm building that many lineups – it's easy to just start, you know, straying away from from the work that we've done to create this player pool and then just start clicking names. OK, OK, we're done with 97, 98, 90, you know what I mean? And you just start clicking away. Um, so, yeah, that's good insight. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that. Man. Yeah, great question. When speaking of clicking names, let's go to the board right now and start clicking names. So we're, 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 you know, we don't have to spend too much time on it. We don't, sure. I don't know. We don't have much time, but let, let's just do the nine K and above. So nine K, the bottom, that's Adam Scott, all the way up to Scotty. Anybody kind of leaning on on a Monday night right now? 
I mean, it's it's hard for me to, to look away from Webb Simpson in, in the course history, right? And Webb Simpson hasn't played a ton, but he's done nothing but top 10 at this golf tournament. Um, so when we're looking at the in the top, you know, the top range of things, you're looking at him and kind of Scotty Scheffler. I do think that there may be some potential value in playing Scotty Scheffler with the way that he ended last week. Um, but him and the only other guy that I'll throw out and um, – and I don't know if this is even below. I don't have it pulled up in front of me. Is Corey Connors in the nine K range? Um, he's somebody I like. He's he had a tenth here last year. Ball striking numbers are fantastic. Drives the ball pretty accurately. Second in strokes gain off the tee in the last twenty four rounds. So he's a guy I like. He hit seventy percent of his fairways, right? And so that's gonna depending. It doesn't matter what course he plays. You hit seventy percent of your fairways. You hit some greens. I think Corey Connors is a solid play this week. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, great stuff. And I'm interested to see what the ownership projections come out on Scotty. I think there's going to be a little bit of a recency bias with him because how people are already, you know, are talking about yesterday, how he choked it away. And so I'll be interested to see what the B on Scotty, you know, Louie's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I soon we're going to see a regression with Louie. Don't tell BK that we're going to see it, unfortunately. But hey, does it happen here? I mean, maybe, maybe not. But I also really like Cam. We know Cam doesn't hit a lot of fairways, not great off the tee, but one thing he is great with, with his wedges and putting, I played a lot of him, you know, uh, last week, and he missed so many within 10 feet. I don't think that happens again. I think Cam's going to make a lot of birdies. English is interesting. Not sure what to do with Connors. Connors is an ownership play. Low own, going to play. I agree. High own, going to fade. I'm going to say Gooch. Gooch is not, this is not a Gooch course. You have to be accurate off the tee. Gooch is not accurate at all. But I want to get your opinion on Kisner. I have a lot to say about Kevin Kisner, but I want to first get your opinion. Everyone's putting him in an outright card. 50 to 1 is a great number on him. But I've seen 35, and people are playing 35 to 1 Kisner. What What do you think about Kevin? Not me. Not me. Yeah. Listen, I, I, Kevin Kisner, th- does this golf course potentially you fit everything that he does well? Yeah, certainly. But – but I'm not I'm not willing to just ride the the idea that Kevin Kisner can show up and win this golf tournament. The form hasn't been there once. Uh, it hasn't been there. Excuse me. It recently um, 50 to one's a nice number as an outright. He's going to be a chalky play, I think, as far as DFS is concerned. I, I don't plan on having any Kevin Kisner this week um, again. It kind of goes into the group thing. Kind of everybody seems to be on Kevin Kisner. Uh, and it's it's like, to me, it's why. Why are you everybody in on Kevin Kisner? And I don't think that the reasoning behind it, I don't think the value's there, right? I think that you could you could give me reasoning, but is it, is it legit reasoning why I should be playing Kevin Kisner? For for me, I'm, I'm off of Kevin Kisner this week. He could certainly prove me wrong, but but I don't have enough to feel confident with the play of Kevin Kisner, especially when we know he's more than likely going to be pretty heavily owned. Yeah. What about you? 50 to, yeah. 50 to one. I don't mind taking, taking a buy sure. at 50 to one, but, but in DFS, we're likely going to get something that I don't think I've ever seen before. <clears throat> and that's chalk guy who's actually coming in one of the worst in the field. So what I mean by that, in my model over the last 24 rounds, and my model ranks up off the tee, ball striking, fairway, green regulation, and some proximity and approach numbers, Kev Kisner ranks 125th in the field in my model. 
He's in he's in the nine Ks, ninety two hundred, and he's going to be chalk. I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. So that just screams maybe the worst bad chalk play out of all DFS. Now, can he win? Sure, he's he he can be a top ten machine here. But over the course of a DSF DFS career, maybe playing a guy in this spot like Kevin Kisner is just a bad play. Betting outright 50 to 1, yeah, there's great value there. But Kis- Kisner may be one of the worst DFS plays that, that I ever seen. And can he win and can he do well? Yes. But this is, I'm not saying a, the, the worst play this week. We're saying worst DFS play. If you play guys that are in this scenario with these metrics, week in, week out, you're, you're going to just burn money DFS. So just consider that. But he's a, he's a bad DFS play. Form, form, he's a 7K player. I mean, that's yeah. it. It's that simple. I mean, you, you look at, like, if we if we follow – and this is the interesting part of what we do here. If we follow strokes gain data, there's absolutely zero reason anybody would play Kevin Kessler this week. Absolutely none. I mean, everything across the board, to your point, is just not good. So this is kind of the opposite of, of where, like, people are a crutch on strokes gain. This is living kind of in the past and hoping for something to kind of come to fruition where at 9,200, which is overpriced, the, the form's not there. It doesn't make much sense to me. It just doesn't. Yeah. And yeah, you're just doing it on course history and narrative that well, I know he's not a Sea Island boy. I think he has a house there, but he doesn't live there. But but anyway, and so I'm going to go down. So Keegan's really interesting. There's, there's three guys in the 8K range that I really, really like. There's actually four, and one of them's your boy, but I'll let you talk about them. But Justin Rose is going to be a big play for me. I I'm, I'm, want to look at ownership, but he's going to be a big play with me. Mackenzie Hughes is going to be on my outright card. Rose likely to. This is a, this Mackenzie Hughes, I think he won here. And then my favorite play, depending on ownership, but as of Monday night, my favorite play is Joel Damon. Joel Damon won on Coastal Course in the win. Bermuda guy, speaking of wonderful models, Sunday last week too. By the way, yeah, exactly. If we like guys coming from a Sunday, you know, he vaulted all the way up on the leaderboard. He ranks fourth in my model. He ranks over the last twenty-four rounds. He ranks ninth in ball striking. He ranks twentieth in fairway finding. Ranks eighteenth on approach. And from the, the one of the most important proximity distances from one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy-five, Joel Damon ranks first. So it's uh, it, it's everything is saying to play Joel Damon, and also on my trend model he ranks number one. He's coming in the best. I, I, there's a little worry that he's peaked and he might come down to earth, but if he can kind of hold it together, Joel Damon is my is likely going to be my favorite play, and he could be my Mark Leach. He could be one of my highest owned guys. I think it's weird with Joel Damon too because I feel like Joel Damon's a super under the radar, just good player. And I don't think like the DFS community is maybe necessarily caught up to that. Um, when you look at with projected ownership numbers for him week to week, I just think that he's somewhat undervalued. And I know he, he had a great week, la- you know, as far as the Sunday last week, but but there's always some value in Joel Damon. I'm with you on Keegan Bradley. Um, the other guy I'll mention is Chris Kirk. Um, I I just think Chris Kirk sets up perfectly for this golf course. Um, yeah. He's 11 strokes gain tee to green. He's had a top 20 here last year. Um, he's just a guy that he may be, I'll keep an eye on Chris Kirk because I feel like Chris Kirk's has become kind of a popular play play recently. Uh, but in the 8k range, him and Keegan Bradley are probably the two guys that I'm looking at. 
Yeah, I, I knew you were going to talk about Kirk, and I'm glad you did. I love so, Chris Kirk, man. <laughs> and so, I don't know why. Time, it's just my boy. Well, he's a ball striker, and you're a PGA yeah. Tour pro. You appreciate that. So I'm going to talk about Matt Kuchar. We're seeing signs of life from Matt Kuchar. So Matt Kuchar obviously plays well here from the area. You know, Wildlife Country Club is a course comp. He's won there. But the Shriners, Kuchar ranked 3.3, or scored 3.3 on approach. Had a beautiful 22 as a game theory play in Mayakoba when he was 6K. Kucher has a heartbeat. Coming to a place where he plays well, I, I, I don't think he's going to be that highly owned. 7,900. I, I love Charles Howell right below him. We see the resurgence. Past of winner, too. Yep. And the past winner, Matt Wallace, even though he's coming off a miscut in Dubai and there's a time change. This is a, this is a Matt Wallace course. We're, really like Matt Wallace. And the last guy I'm going to mention in this kind of 7K range is Aaron Rye. Aaron Rye trending very, very well. Played well last week. One thing a lot of people don't have a lot of backstrokes game data on Aaron Rye. So, and I, I, I wrote him up on a fan share article two weeks ago. So I may get this wrong because it's not in front of me. But one thing we know about this course is hitting greens and regulation is key. Aaron, Aaron Rye was one of the best on the European tour the last three years in doing that. So consider that. He actually ranks 21st in my model. He ranks 12th in finding fairways. Aaron Rye is a great play. I really like him. What else in the 7K range do you like? Yeah, so a, a guy that, again, he kind of breaks models. Like, we see him all the time. I do kind of like Patrick Rogers this week. And, and the win equity is clearly not there. The stats are there. For me, it's more of how he's trending recently. So you look back last five, last ten. The ball striking numbers have been good. He's he's right about three and a half strokes gain total. Um, it, he's one of the guys to me, and there's a few of them, right? Keegan Bradley's usually a, a, a model breaker. There's there's certain guys that, that kind of find their way up there every week. I do kind of like the the fit here for Patrick Rogers this week. Uh, and then I'm going to go back to the bottom with Denny McCarthy. And I, I mentioned him earlier. Um DFS wise, he's he's been really really solid for me. Um, he has two top twenties, two five, top fifteens in his last two starts. If you're putting him at the base of seven thousand, I think there's value in taking Denny McCarthy. He's and we talked about the overseas, but he's sixth in strokes game on Bermuda in the last twenty four. So he's a guy I'm looking at, at the bottom of the seven K range. So Patrick Rogers. And again, we'll see with Patrick Rogers when we get closer to it. There's actually, and I know we don't have time to talk about a lot of people. There's a lot of value in that 7K range this week. Oh, a thousand percent. And, and yeah. let's get in. Let's get into the, the the 6K range where there's a lot to talk about. First guy I'm going to talk about is Zach Johnson. Mentioned on mentioned on Twitter on Saturday or Sunday. He, did. he played well. He, or yeah, he played very well at a course that does not suit his game last week. Now he gets to. A course where he actually lives on the course, has great course history, like Zach, Zach Johnson. Matt Neesmith. And I, we, we talked a lot about last week and his ball striking stats. I want to point out Andy Lack brought up this information. The SEC Championship is played here in one other college tournament that I'm sure you all know the, know the name of it. It's the something cup. Matthew Neesmith's results is like top five, top five, top five, top five, top five. And his two tournaments here in his course history, he has like two top 20s. Matt Neesmith loves this place. Backed it up in college. And good week last week too, right? Yeah, a good week last week. Matt Neesmith is, is going to be a good play. My One of my favorite plays is Russell Knox. He's great. Speaking of modeling, models out the fifth best. It's just everything, so remember that. 
been on Hudson Swafford a while, so I'm going to keep rolling with him. Let's go, uh, baby. Yeah, he, he kind of models out really well. Davis Thompson is another guy that Andy mentioned. And, you know, Georgia boy has great course history here um, back in the college days. And I'm going to go all the way or up oh, looking at the wrong thing. Kind of don't want to miss out on these 6K guys. Roy Sabatini, Davis Riley, Vincent Whaley, Nick Hardy, Bronson Burgoon, and the last guy is Sung Kang. Those are my six gay guys that are going to be in my pool. Who do you like it? Yeah, so Zach Johnson was was in my my pool as well. But I'm going to go with Kramer Hickok, which nice. which had a very solid week last week. Um, and, and really, like when I get to these these AK range, I like to kind of narrow that that the form to eight rounds instead of the normal 24 I do. Um, and so he's third in strokes gain total in in the last eight. Um, Bermuda's his best for surface, and then Cam Young which is at 6,800. He's a Corn Ferry Tour guy. Uh, the numbers are there. He had a second at, the, at Sanderson. Um, so between Zach Johnson and Kramer Hickok and, and Cam Young, Cameron Young, I uh, those are kind of the three guys that I'm focusing on right now. All right. Well, woo, we, we went through that really quickly. I know this has been one of our longer ones. But I, I just want to say, Drew, if there's nothing else, this is the last show before Thanksgiving. If you're stateside and Christmas, if you're celebrating, however you might celebrate, I appreciate you, Drew. I appreciate how you treat people, how you interact with people. You do a great job with that. I appreciate your insight and who you are. And for our listeners, we're very thankful. And speaking of Thanksgiving, want to give thanks for how you interact with us, for how you listen and how you support, whether it's the likes and the retweets or just sending us a message saying, hey, great show. We really, really appreciate that. There's nothing better than this community. We got a lot of good people here. So no better time than Thanksgiving to give some thanks. Anything else, Drew, before we send off for the final time of 2021? Yeah, to your point, lots to be thankful for. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Again, all the support. Rob, appreciate you. I look forward to the show every week, um, and and I just hope everybody has a happy and safe uh, holiday season, and we'll uh, we'll see you here uh, sooner rather than later. That sounds good, and everybody wish Drew a happy birthday. <laughs> All right, we'll see you Thanks, later. Thanks, man.